Thank you. Good morning. Would you stand with me? We're going to open up our Bibles and we're going to read from Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at the end of the chapter 41 through 47. This is God's word. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. <clears throat> Peter's sermon, it's referring back to the, the sermon that Peter's just preached. Those that received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have a need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would now be with my words. Father, make them true to what your word teaches. Make them clear to our hearts, our consciences, our minds. Make them helpful and effective in stirring us to the right action, to a deeper devotion, to a more acute knowledge of our need for you. Somehow this morning, Lord, we pray that you would do this in each one of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to start this morning by doing something I try not to do too often, or at least I hope not, and that is I want to start by telling you about one of the stupidest things I've ever done in my entire life. And I'd like to say it happened a long time ago, but I can't. It was about a year ago, and I've got a lot of brush to clear on my property, and and so I had worked on it over the summer, but what I found is that grapevines are easy to pull out in the dead of winter when they aren't green and just wrapped with strength around everything in the yard. And so last winter, there was snow all over the ground, and I remember <clears throat> just going out one afternoon thinking, I'm just going to get a few things, you know, out of the yard. And I started pulling, and these started coming easy. So I started pulling, 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 and I amassed this humongous pile of sticks and grapevines and other things in my backyard. And then I thought, man, I don't always like having massive piles of brush in my yard. I'm going to try and just burn it, you know? It's the dead of winter. I'm going to burn it up. Uh, Leo will be happy, you know, we won't have this massive pile. So I remember piling this stuff all together and getting some stuff, some cardboard, lighting it, sticking it into the fire, but it just wouldn't catch. It was a windy, cold winter day. There was literally snow everywhere except for on my pile because I had been pulling this brush out of the, you know, the foliage. And so it was clear, but pretty much everything else around me was covered in snow. And I thought, man, how am I going to get this pile on fire. I need this thing to catch. And here's the stupid part. I went to see what kind of gas I had. 
And I didn't have any gas left over from my gas tanks. You drain them for the winter, you know? I, I, don't like, I don't like having gas sit over the winter. And so the only gas I had was all the gas I had pre-mixed with stuff from my still weed whackers and stuff. So it had oil in it. And there's this little ember down in the fire, you know, that's barely hanging on. And I walk over to that thing and I think, yeah, it's about to go down. And I, <laughs> I poured gasoline mixed with oil from this container onto that tiny, tiny little smoldering ember. And all of a sudden, I remember thinking, I'm on fire. <laughs> the flame had traveled right up the gasoline. I had sort of flipped out and thrown the container, which put gas all over me, all over my hoodie. I remember looking down at my North Face jacket and my arms were burning. I had flames going all over. I remember looking down at the ground and there was flames on the snow. It's like, how does that happen? But it happens with oil. I, 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 I really, for about, Aaliyah wasn't home at the time. <laughs> I remember thinking, what sort of ramifications is this going to have on my life? You know, I'm surrounded. <laughs> and after about 10 seconds of stomping, I got the flames pretty much off of me, swatting, and isolated to a section of snow that I thought, that's not going to catch anything on fire. I think we're okay. Meanwhile, well, I did have something to deal with in a, in a stupid, you know, I, uh, <laughs> there was, I did some other stupid stuff at the time, but I, I was okay. Nothing drastic happened in my life except that I learned a very valuable lesson, all right? <laughs> um, when I was reading the passage of Scripture this week, um, this story from last year came to mind. And the reason that it came to mind is that what we see in this passage is sort of the equivalent of what I experienced last, week, last winter. We have had a spark here. The truth preached by by Peter to these people is a spark. It is a spark. And yet what we see in this passage and what we see happening, and we're going to keep seeing it happen over the next several chapters as we go through Acts, is that the Holy Spirit adds his fuel to that spark. There's power in the word of God and it's spoken, but sometimes it doesn't take effect. But here, the word of God is it accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit and in this chapter, what we see is a rapid, rapid growth in the church, just like that flame that I wish wasn't on me, but it was. It was a rapid, it's boom. This is what we're seeing when we look at the passage this morning. And as we consider these verses, there is a particular reality that I would like us to observe in our time together this morning. And the particular reality that I want us to bear in mind to observe as we look at this rapid growth in the church is the reality of change. The reality of change. It's rapid. It's undeniable. It's felt by all. We can observe this change at various levels if you look at the text. We are told that in one day, three thousand souls are added by the Lord. They're added by the Lord, added to, to what, where? What are they added to? They're added to the church by the Lord. 3,000 souls. The fire has been lit and it is growing. At the individual level, you think about all those individuals and the inner, internal change that they underwent 
At this day, at this point in history, the Lord has given them new birth by hearing the word of God and accompanying that spark, that word, with the power of change and of his Holy Spirit. They have new hearts. And what we see is the change is not just internal. Because what Luke records as we go on in these verses is that, yes, there was an internal change. The Holy Spirit worked in their hearts, but that internal change manifested itself in all sorts of external changes as well. So it's not just a change of of thought or a change of, of heart alone. It's a change of heart that leads to what all real changes of heart will lead to, which is a change of life. Their hearts change, their lives change with them. New desires, new loves, new commitments, new sacrifices, a new way of living. So we're gonna see that that Luke, rather, describes this new way of living to us in these verses. A new way of life from what has come before. Then if we think about the church at large, not just you know, the individuals that were changing. All those individuals are now a part of something. They were added to the church. And so what you have is you have a church that's changing, right? Just like this church made up of hundreds of individual believers that are changing. But as a church, just like as a family, churches experience change too. And the church is changing. In one day, think about this. In one day, not only has the church gone from, you know, 140-ish people to a few thousand people, which would be um, a radical shift and a glorious thing, but also comprising of, uh, comprised with, you know, problem-solved things you've got to figure out, which we're going to get there in a few chapters. Lots of practical changes. But you, you think about this. In one day, the church went from people that had all seen the risen Christ to a small fraction of the church actually having witnessed the risen Christ. That's a big change. So there, there's more changes I could point out, and maybe we'll point out as we go along, but I'm just trying to get us to think about this reality. It's a little marinate on our mind a little bit. So <clears throat> what we see is that the church in this passage is uh, particularly, what we see is that the church has grown through the work of the Holy Spirit and that change at various levels and in various ways, both individually and corporately, is a part of that growth. We could see the same principle at play in our families. I remember 12 years ago, bringing home our firstborn son, Micaiah, from the hospital. I remember it very clearly. And it was a wonderful, joyful thing. But as our family has, had now grown and from no children to one child. I even remember at that point, because I was a student, that having a child brought real change to bear in my life as a student. It was good. It was different, but it was good. When you're, when you're a student in college, you've got like the college life, right? And then that started to change when I got married to Aaliyah, and then that really started to change when I had a family, because when you have kids then, you're, you don't do the same things you did beforehand. So we see this, you know, now six or almost seven kids in, and this change has continued in my life over the last handful of years. You know, lots of things look different now for me and my family than they did when Ali and I were single, uh, or even when we had one or two children. So we, we know by our own experience, all of us, the realities which I'm talking about. <clears throat> 
We've experienced them in, in some ways that I know you're able to relate to. We've, as a church, experienced this many, many, many times ourselves. I was thinking about <clears throat> the things over the last 20 years that have changed in church life. And they're all over. I mean, you, you all can identify them. We've had changes in ministries. We've added ministries and classes because there's new needs that arise. Uh, there, we've, we've had, at, uh, a while ago now, a very specific and deliberative change in our worship. That was a big change that we were led through by our elders and by my dad, the other pastors and the elders. I think in the last 10 years, we've experienced other changes. We've, I think in the last 10 years, had a much wider group of uh, types of people join our church than we had in the first 10 years. We've had a lot more people from a lot wider background than we did at the beginning of our church. And that's been a change, and it's been a good one. It's been good for us to have more new Christians in our church these past 10 years than we did at the beginning. God gave us who we gave at the beginning. I don't disparage that, but it's been healthy for us. It's been healthy for us to not assume that everyone understands everything and to step back and say, no, we need to teach the things that are fundamental, right? We need to do things a certain way because God's brought people to us, right? This is, it's been glorious. Okay, you can keep thinking about the changes that we've undergone, but we have undergone them. And um, I'm just trying to point a few out. We've had changes in leadership, obviously, even in this past year. Uh, change has been a natural byproduct of God's growth, not just numerically, but as a, a family and a growth in our faith over the last 20 years. And it has also been a necessary part of God's sanctifying and maturing work. Just as families change and grow as they mature, so does the church. This is the truth. And what I want to say is that this is a good thing. It's a good thing. As I look back, I am incredibly thankful for all the ways in which this church, you have embraced change throughout the years. Even coming through the transition that we've just come through with me as your senior pastor now, you have, as a congregation, been more than gracious in trusting God, and that has led to a time of joyful expectation for our future. When you embrace change with faith and with commitment to God, great and wonderful things happen. We're told that the people in this passage were filled with joy, with gladness, and with sincerity of heart, praising God and giving thanks for all the good he had done to them. That's sort of the, the, the verse at the end that Peter kind of talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, and then he talks about the change that that evoked in the life of the people. And then it says, and here's the result. They're like, this is, this is, this is what life was like. They lived together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God 
And then the result of that, of course, is wonderful as well. God was adding daily to the number being saved because who can't see that and want it? Who can't see that and be struck with the power and glory of living a life like that? Change is not just necessary, it's good. Change always accompanies the work of the Holy Spirit. This past week, one of our pastor's college students was preaching to us from Mark chapter six. And in Mark chapter six, uh, we have Jesus sending out the 12 disciples. And you remember, if you, if you may remember, if you know that section, that when Jesus sends them out, he says, you know, don't go with two money belts. Don't load yourself down, you know, Boy Scout style. You know, like, take barely what you need. I will provide. You'll be cared for. And when you go to a city, when you go to a town, and they don't receive your word, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. What's Jesus doing there? What's he teaching them? He's teaching them to expect change. He's saying, where my spirit is at work, there will be change. There will be some response. If you don't see any change, the Holy Spirit's not working. Don't waste your time. Maybe God will work in them later. But there are fields that are right for the harvest right now. So don't waste your time when you have my Holy Spirit working with you, in you, through you, and in the lives of those you're hearing. There will be change. That's what he's teaching them. He teaches the disciples to expect it. So the church without change is stagnant. The church without any change is ineffective. A church that has the power of the Holy Spirit working through her with a commitment to the word of God is going to be a church that sees many, many types of changes. And it's going to be powerful and it's going to be fruitful. So what I want to say is that as we look toward our future, we know that changes will come. They're inevitable. And what I'm calling us to do this morning is to anticipate them as being for our good as we seek God. To not live in fear of them, but to anticipate them and really know that all those things, even the changes that cause us to worry at points, are for our good as we are devoted to the Lord. I've been speaking about change and how it's necessary and good for the growth of the church, and I've sought to highlight the ways in which this has happened in the past, and I've already alluded to the ways in which, you know, it's been happening. I can't help but think of even just last week with the ordination and installation of some new deacons and a new elder. This is change. It's change. Different people bring different gifts, different, you know, there will be change. <laughs> you know, uh, we are going, undergoing, I said at Robin Kepler's funeral that uh, the generational shift in this church is just very starkly on my mind. And I've been thinking about that in the weeks since that time. I, we see it everywhere. We have wave after wave of uh, generations of children going into college age, going into full-on adulthood, taking on responsibilities, making commitments, getting married, turning parents into grandparents. I mean, it's happening all the time. Just think of it. People are getting older rapidly. 
You know, you look around, and if, you look, or if you're here on a Wednesday night, you see, and you've been here for a little while, you see the punks who used to be in Awana now leading Awana. You know? I'm thinking only the boys, obviously, you know. But you see this. I've seen those that received marriage counseling now giving marriage counseling, right? These things happen. They're good. We are being led in worship by different men and women, and it's glorious. It's great. In a church that is alive, there will always be change. Change keeps us healthy. It keeps us dependent on God. It stretches our faith because often the things that God will call us to are surprising or challenge us, at, at least in the moment where they're presented, often when we're in the midst of it. So you get sea lakes. But only after it, you look back and you are strengthened as a result. Embrace change as a good thing. That's what I'm calling us to do. It's a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in us, just as we see in our passage. And now, having firmly, I hope, established that one idea in your mind, I do want to do something of a a planting my foot and pivoting just a little bit. Because I want to call us to this, but I also want to be faithful to the text. And in the text, we see not one, but two things. And so what I want to say now is that after talking about how change is good and necessary, I want to speak about the things that must not change. There will be change. There needs to be change. There are certain things that may not change. Certain things that you need to hold on to certain things that you must pass down to your children, not just as, of course, the Holy Spirit has to work in them as you're passing it down, but what I'm saying is it's a both and, right? The Holy Spirit has to work, and the church of Revelation was accused by God for letting their their fire grow lukewarm. And so you must tend to it. You must cultivate it. And those that God has given you, and those that you shepherd, not just your kids, those that you're leading, so many of you, are leading the things that must not change. These are listed by Luke in verse 42. And then in the following verses, um, Luke um, shows how these things played out. Verse 42. They were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to breaking of bread and to prayer. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. Lists four things. These things are like the pillars that hold up a house. I'm redoing my house right now. And what I've come to realize, it's a very sad realization. Every single wall in my house has wallpaper. Every single, and you know what's worse? Most of it has been painted over. Some of it has been painted over multiple, multiple times. Listen, walls will be repainted. Furniture will move, fixtures will be updated. If not, a house, my house, appears unkept and dull. But, the foundation of the house must not change. I've got pillars across the front of my house that support the entire roof line. If you take out those pillars, you take up out 
what's holding that house up? And you put the house at risk of immediately collapsing on itself. The things that Peter lists here in verse 42 are the pillars of the church. They are the pillars, the things that we must hold on to. They are not just random observations, casual observations about, oh, yeah, I saw this going on over there, and I saw this going on over there. It's not description. It's proscription by Peter and by Luke, right? He's saying these are the things that the Holy Spirit has done. Not just as, hey, these things happen here and other things will happen elsewhere. No, these things must abide. These things must remain. It's a picture of what the church of Jesus Christ must be about. So we have these devotions of the church. Think about what we're told. The apostles, the first Christians, lived in such a way that it could be said of them that they were continually devoting themselves Continually devoting themselves. What do you think of when you think about devotion? What are people devoted to today? I was up in Detroit last night, and I know what some people are devoted to. I was talking with a guy at a coffee shop, and he was talking with me about there's a Lions game going on. There are some seriously devoted people out there to the Lions. He asked if I was going, and then he told me the price of tickets was like $1,800 a piece or something. I don't know. That's what he said, $1,700. That's some devotion, okay? But what are you devoted to? What are you devoted to? When I think about devotion, I think about marriage. It's the first thing that came to my mind because we're told that when a husband is told to, is to get married to a wife, he's told to leave his father and mother and to be devoted or to cleave, to grab onto, hold onto his wife. And there's this connotation that <clears throat> a man leaves behind something in order to hold fast to something else. And we see that in our passage. These Christians were getting saved and they were getting brought into the church, the bride of Christ. And there's this radical shift in their devotions. They start letting go of the things that they used to hold fast to and they start grabbing onto new things. When we read the passage, the extent to which Luke is trying to portray just how radical and serious this devotion is, is obvious. Think about the way he describes it. He could have said that they devoted themselves, very normal way of phrasing it, but he chooses not to. Instead, describing it in this way, they were continually devoting, right? It's, a, it's an active present verb, continually devoting themselves. And it's not just for a little time, it's a continual devotion. It was an everyday commitment to be lived out. So this devotion, these devotions are clear and obvious. They were felt, they were seen. They were hurt. They were sacrificial. Their devotions were others-focused. It was joyful, and it brought much, much glory to God. Four devotions, four devotions. Teaching of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles. This is quite a statement to make. He doesn't just say that they listened to what was preached. He says they gave themselves to it. 
They did what it said. There are many today who are very happy to listen to the Bible. Many who talk about what the Word of God says and maybe even complain about pastors who don't preach the Bible. But there are comparatively very few who devote themselves to the Word of God. The people in this passage do not stop with finding a good teacher. They don't settle for attending a church that teaches what is right. They obey what is taught. They live out what is preached. They listen to the Bible and say, okay, I'm going to live that way. I'm gonna, Jesus said you can't love God and money. Okay, well, I've, here's, here's this. I don't need this. Jesus said I'm to love my neighbor as myself. Well, how am I going to do that today? What does that look like for me? Not as some just general idea, but how can I do that today, day by day? Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Well, that makes sense. I guess what implications would they have on my life? Jesus devoted himself to prayer and called his disciples to wait and pray for him. I think we should try to do that. We too must be devoted to the teaching of the apostles. We must devote, be devoted to hearing the word preached and studying the word ourselves. Think back to the time when we founded this church when, when it was started. We named our church Christ the Word because the word of God is our very foundation. Having and loving the word cannot be separated from having and loving Jesus Christ. He is the living word. And so I call on us to love the word of God. Do you love the word of God? Young people, new Christians, there's many things to love about this church, many things to enjoy. The very foundation of all that's good and right comes from a devotion to the word of God, to knowing it to being challenged by it and strengthened through it, by be, having a commitment to living by what it says and, there, and, and by so doing, seeing God's blessing on your life. Are you devoted to the word of God like you're devoted to other things? Because if you are, it shouldn't be the case. You need to be devoted much, much more, much, much more. A central core commitment of your life. If we are to be faithful for generations, like we sang earlier, as we prayed as a church for years as we built this building and the campaign was to a thousand generations, if we're to be faithful, then it starts by being devoted to the word of God today and then tomorrow and then the next day, day by day, a devotion. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship Certainly this means enjoying each other, and I think God has blessed us to be able to do that, but it means more than that. If we look at verse 42, we get a description for what this fellowship entailed. And then if we look at verse 44, it's certainly the truth that they, they were together physically a lot. This, they, they were together. This is an important thing. I'm not trying to... Being together is a wonderful thing. God created the church so that people could together Worship him. The church is a, is a living organism, just like a family. Just as a family shares chores and responsibilities and meals and joys and hardships, so does the church. 
we are told that they had all things in common. That means those who had a surplus gave out of that surplus. They sold and provided for those who had a lack. Being devoted to fellowship is not just hanging out, although it includes enjoying each other. Isn't that a nice thing? But it's more than that. It's more than just hanging out. It is purposeful, sacrificial investment and devotion to someone else. It's not so much about what you receive through it. It's about what you are giving through it. This is a great work of the Holy Spirit. And we are able to love in this way because Jesus has shared his love with us. This is not the way of the world. I'm I'm reading in Proverbs right now, and I'm so struck. We're going to read through some of these passages on Sunday mornings as we go through Proverbs. Again and again, it talks about how the rich oppress the poor and how even the poor man is always despised by his neighbor. No one cares about him. And yet in the church, it is not so. It's not this way here. There's a continual devotion to fellowship, to mutual love, commitment, unity. This is something that we have had a commitment to as a church. Just this past week, I was sitting, talking with a young man who recently started, and he was, he was telling me that it was very striking that when he first started coming here, you know, he got three invitations to come over to people's houses, and that he loved that, and that seemed like it fit with Scripture, and, and that's great. God has enabled us to do this. That he is, he is, it's something that has been modeled for us well. But we must continue in it. It's not just something that's the devotion of one generation and not the next. It must be passed on. It must be uh, continued. Third, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, while there is a significant and important emphasis on hospitality in the Bible, this is not just an additional or a redundant statement about the church's devotion to being together. It speaks to them carrying out Jesus' command to observe the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. And this is important. This is, what all I want to say at this point, I suppose, for the morning and the time that we have is that um, this was a commitment not just being together informally, but formally. You understand why I say that? When you come for communion, it's not informal. It's not just, hey, you know, kumbaya, let's all... Uh, get in the same room, hold hands. I did that once and I shouldn't have done it. I, I, I was asked to go to a, an, some friend's house in college and they, they brought out, you know, communion in the middle of the, I don't know, I shouldn't have ever done that. That's not the way communion is supposed to be done. I should have thought better about it. Thinking back, as, what was I thinking? Communion is not informal, it's formal. So the commitment we see here is not just the informal, oh yeah, we enjoy each other, we enjoy being at each other's houses, we enjoy hand. It's also a commitment to the formal um, authority and structure of the church and the embrace of that. That's really what's being taught here. And then the fourth, a devotion to prayer. And that's simple. Simple to understand, much harder to carry out. I think about all the times that I've failed to pray for the things I've committed to praying for. And I ask and I pray for myself. I've been trying to increase my prayer life. And I pray for all of us that God would make us a people of prayer. We must be a people of prayer and devotion to prayer. Because it's in prayer that we see that we don't actually have it ourselves. We don't have it all together. We need something more. We need the power of God. 
Are you devoted to prayer? I want to say as we wrap up that if you're younger, if you're new, you, you recognize that the, the extent to which this church has been blessed by God, you, you feel it, you've received it, you're living in it. And what I want to point out is that you have received something through the devotion of those that have gone before you. They have given of themselves. They have been devoted. They have sacrificed. They have been selfless. God has been glorified and has been happy to pour forth his spirit in a way that has done wonderful things here. And you have been blessed, and I have been blessed, as a result of their faithfulness. Do not take for granted what you have received without recognizing the sacrifices that have been made. Do not take it for granted. We must have hearts of love and of gratitude, and we must show it by giving ourselves to the same things in the same ways and purposing to even go further to the glory of God. These devotions, these core things that we cannot turn from, though lots of change will come and styles change, and there's so many changes that are a part of life. But these things must remain. They must be held and considered precious, not just by your parents, but by you. You don't want to be a trust fund baby in the church. You've been given an example, and I would encourage you. Uh, I'm sorry, now I'm moving on. I want to speak to those that are older. And I want to say that you have done so many of these things for 20 years. And um, at the same time, I want to call on you to not grow weary or to not feel out of place, but to continue in these devotions. You've been our example. I want to encourage you and say that um, we need your example and your witness to continue. We need the devotions that you have been a part of your life to continue. Even as the world says, as you get older, things get easier and you, you do all this work and make all these sacrifices so that at the end you can kind of coast and take it easy and relax. That is, not, that is not the way that the Christian life is supposed to be run. You don't coast across the finish line. And so even as I'm so grateful and thankful, I call on you to continue on, to continue to provide a clear picture of what it looks like to those that are coming behind you. You know, because the church is always being sanctified and growing, but there's this generational idea, you know? Like, we can have a whole host of generations lead this church, but pretty soon, they're not there anymore, and it needs to be passed on, right? And that's the ongoing purification of the church that Jesus talks about. As we all live devoted to these things, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, embrace of the church, prayer, uh, God will bless all of the changes that we will invariably walk through throughout the course of the next 20 or 40, 100 years. To the extent that we live as these early Christians do, we can expect the same result. And I want to end by reading, day by day they continued with one mind. In the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number those being saved. What a wonderful, glorious picture of life. And it is not fiction for the Christian. It's not fiction. It's reality. This is the future that we want. 
Would you pray with me?